Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast, and I got a special episode. They're all special, but this one especially is because Jason Courtney is in the house, and he's got an amazing story. It'll blow you away, and I like this guy a lot, and we're going to be talking about his story here. Jason is a guy who lives in St. Louis. He's a fellow Cardinals fan. That says it all right there. Nothing else matters, right? That's right. You are a Cardinals fan, right, Jason? <laughs> I am today. No, I, I am born and raised, uh, never lived anywhere else. Don't think I ever would. I like to visit places, but this is home, you know? Nice. All right. So he's a Cardinals fan. <laughs> Just kidding. Kind of. Kind of not. Like he, I tell you what, though, Jason, you would not be on the podcast if you were a Cubs fan. I'm just saying. Um, I think we're safe. All right, good. All right. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, Jason is a good, I mean, oh, he's got a story. And I hope you don't mind Jason putting you on the spot. And I'm going to ask you to share some of your story a little bit. And uh, Jason has an amazing coaching program as well. And he's doing something that I don't see anybody else doing now. He keeps his coaching program very small, very personal. And we're going to talk about what he does because Jason has some real gifts and talents. And one of them is he's a sales ninja on the phone. Uh, he, he doesn't think he is. He's got a real humble attitude, but he's really, really good on the phone. I've heard him on the phone with sellers and we're going to talk about that as well. So Jason, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm great, Joe. I'm glad to be, be on your podcast today, Bob. You know, I've been following you for a long time. Super excited to have you as one of my own personal coaches. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, meeting some of your people through the podcast. Nice. Nice. So let's go back a little bit. We were having breakfast. Where was that? It was somewhere over in. Ah, uh, never mind. It's not important. <laughs> I don't know, but I didn't finish my burrito because I talked so much. <laughs> Halfway That's through funny. my story, yeah, I started crying like a two-year-old. I'm so embarrassed, you know. But. No, man, I was almost crying. I, I, uh, obviously I couldn't, I couldn't feel the emotional impact like you did, but man, it was like, oh, it was heavy and intense, but it was awesome. Uh, mm -hmm. God's done an amazing thing in your life, but let's talk about it. Let's go back. What were you doing? Kind of growing up, Jason, what was going I was on? To, I was up to no good, Joe. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I like to say that um, I had a lot of fun partying or I wouldn't have done it. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> however, I think at uh, some point I, I went overboard and uh, developed a drink in and a uh, drug problem that uh, wound up uh, getting me in a lot of trouble and uh, ultimately wound up in prison because of it. Hmm. And so it's hard to explain that type of a lifestyle, but you know, it's, I always tell people, they say, what was it like in there? And I say, well, it's the loneliest place on the planet, but you're never alone. And uh, it's, it's miserable. However, you know, I also tell people that even though I couldn't get out, there was a lot of crap that couldn't get in, you know, and it allowed me to focus really. And uh, think about what I really wanted out of my life. If this is what the ultimate, 
end of my life would be, or if this is something that would, you know, define me or not. And, uh, ultimately it changed my life forever. Is it, uh, impolite to ask what, what landed you in prison? Cause I know you told me before, but I don't, I don't know if it's appropriate. Can I ask you or can yeah, you, tell you us? Certainly can. I mean, it was ultimately a drug deal that went bad. So like my real estate business, I never do anything halfway. So <laughs> I started, uh, I probably started selling a lot more, uh, <laughs> drugs than I probably should have. Um, that's funny. I was a kind of, I was a pot guy, you know, so I sold a lot of pot and, you know, I was got so big that I had runners in every County in St. Wow. Louis one of those uh, runners ran off with uh, a little over $10,000 worth of pot and uh, in the process of going after him to regroup my money, uh, I was arrested and, you know, that's how it went. So it was a drug deal that went horribly bad. And um, wasn't your dad, talk about your, wasn't your dad instrumental or uh, wasn't he or something? I'm trying to remember. Well, it was inter- instrumental to my uh, awakening of, how we're kind of a product of our environment. You know, we don't get to pick our parents, you know? Yeah. So, unfortunately, you got to deal with the, the cards you're dealt. My dad, uh, although him and I have an excellent relationship today, we had a rough relationship. He was alcoholic and he was abusive. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think that I learned a lot of my behaviors from him. Uh, he's also uh, was a multimillionaire and did uh, <clears throat> in a real estate business. And, you know, he's, had a lot of money, he's lost it all, had a lot of money, lost it all, very uh, either two or 10, you know, nowhere in the middle. Hmm. Um, and today he's he's really sick. And um, I get to spend time with him, caring for him now. And him and I have just an amazing relationship. But yeah, I think that <clears throat> I learned a lot of bad behaviors. I used to really hate my father, I have to tell you. And it wasn't until somebody asked me what my dad's dad was like. And uh, my dad's dad passed away when he was 12 years old. So this gentleman I was talking to said to me, what makes you think your dad even knew how to be a dad? And I think it, it crushed me at that point uh, to, uh, to where I thought to myself, you're right. He didn't have an example himself. And when I look back uh, on my life, I, I say to myself, he really did try the best he knew how to be a good dad. And the things that I remembered were the horrible things, but it wasn't until I started focusing on some of the great things that he did to where I really started developing some compassion for him, which allowed me to forgive him for all the crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and have, and so we can move on and have a great relationship. So when I got out of prison, I confronted him with all the things that had happened in the past. And, you know, he didn't remember a lot of them cause he was drunk and, but he apologized for them. We were able to move on. And, and since that day, him and I are probably closer than, you know, any of my siblings. So now how long ago was this when you got, went into prison and you, and you got out? I went in in uh, 95 and got out in 2000. So. Wow. Uh, you're there for five years. Yeah. 18 years ago. I didn't realize it was that long. Yeah. It was uh, five years to the day, including leap year. <laughs> So not, not that I was counting or anything. <laughs> yeah. I remember you talking about your dad and it was very, very emotional. Um, well, my, my love for him now is just as intense, if not more intense than my hate was for him. You know, it was wow. emotional. It's hard to talk about, but yeah. it's a great thing. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. 
I became a Christian while I was inside uh, in the institution. Also, a group came in from the outside and shared Christ with me. It changed my life forever. And I remember just before I went up for parole the first time that I was praying for patience because, you know, all you want when you're in there is to get out. I'm like, Lord, give me patience. Give me patience. And I got denied parole. I was like, oh, that's the last thing you should be praying for when you go up for parole. (laughs) So anyway, I'm not saying God showed me patience by denying my parole three times, but it was certainly uh, eye-opening. Okay. All right. So, you got out in 2000. I'm sorry. Is that what you said, right? 2000? Yeah, that's right. May of 2000. What happened then? Well, I, my dad, whom I had, you know, just rekindled a relationship with, he owns a custom home building company here in St. Louis. And he's uh-huh. been custom homes in Missouri and Illinois for a little over 40 years now. Yeah. And so I... Uh, he uh, put me on the design floor. So I started designing uh, custom homes for his clients. And um, that's, that's what I started doing, you know, right away, right away. And your business kind of exploded, didn't it? It'd be, it'd be I mean, a good way. It, you hit the market right when it started going up. Am I right? right. Yeah. So uh, my dad's uh, custom home building business. I was able to, once I joined the sales floor, floor there, I was able to take him to multi-million dollar status um, as far as uh, sales went. And uh, I think we grew really fast and um, tried to keep up. And we ended up opening up another office to, um, you know, broaden our demographic, if you will. However, we opened up that office within our, we had a 200 mile building radius. So we built custom homes within a 200 mile radius of that office but like fools we opened up an office within that 200 miles so all we did was create more overhead and didn't get any more business so just a lesson that i learned early you know what i mean about growth and and sometimes it's it's better to stay small you know yeah oh that's for sure stay small keep it all we were talking about that a minute ago right Right. Yeah. So I went from the designing custom homes and uh, doing really, really well there, making a lot of money. And uh, then the bottom dropped out and we saw the beginning of it in 2006. Didn't really impact us because we were a specialty builder. We weren't a track builder. And uh, most of our customers weren't impacted by the economy. (laughs) However, it trickled down slowly. And by 2008, custom home building business was, was just almost nothing. We went from building 50 to 75 homes a year down to less than 20. So, wow. Though, if you don't mind me asking, cause I'm always curious about this, the companies that survived during that time, why and how did they survive? Well, did, my um, yeah, my dad's company is still around today. My uh, brother runs it now. Yeah. Um, and they were debt free is how they survived. Wow. There you go. Yeah, they. Uh, my dad did a good job of. He had a small mortgage, I think, on his office building at the time, but it wasn't wasn't that big of a deal. So As a business did. owner, yeah, it stinks. You know, you got to lay a bunch of people off, but you can keep your business afloat. You yeah. can still design twenty homes a month. I mean, a year, right? Yeah. Right. So even during the downturn, you were still had a few homes to do, huh? Well, I think for me, Joe, that's when I really started looking into alternative uh, ways of real estate. That's when I started 
my first company, or my, I shouldn't say first, it's still my company, New Alpha Corp. Uh, we were one of the largest short sale negotiation companies in St. Louis by 2011. Huh. So I started studying what was happening in the market and the reason that uh, the foreclosures were absolutely killing us. And so I started to focus on how to prevent them. And I knew that loan modifications and short sales were the only way. And so I dove into learning about that and I started uh, New Alpha Corp. Uh, and that's when uh, we started doing short sales. Uh, that short sale business uh, eventually became a feeder for our flipping business. So we were buying these properties at a discounted rate from the bank, and then we would go in, renovate them, and flip them, and made a lot of money doing that in a down market. Okay. And how long did that last? So, um, you know, I still dabble in short sales a little bit. I still have negotiators that I send um, all of my leads to that are in that type of situation. But I'll tell you something we uh, started doing was shorting seconds to create equity. And then we take those properties subject to their existing financing. Uh, and so we'd have a first that was, you know, at a great, we got a great discounted price on the home if we were able to short the second. So I use my negotiators to negotiate uh, junior liens now. So. Huh. Interesting. And is that, uh, so you're, are you going out and finding the notice of defaults and then marketing to them? Uh, I don't do any marketing for any type of properties in distress anymore. Um, okay. These just kind of fall in my lap because you know, agents know what we did and do. I mean, the majority of our business came from real estate agents. So yeah. they had short sale or houses they couldn't sell because the people owed more than they were worth and they'd send them to us and we'd negotiate the sales for them and they'd be our agent on the front end and the back end. So nice, nice. Yeah. All right. So still doing that a little bit. You, I'm curious to know if you could talk more about the creative financing side of it, right? So you you can do short seconds, uh, you take over mortgages subject to, do some lease options. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you do that? Yeah, well, um, I'll tell you kind of um, how I, well, let me tell you a little bit more about my story with my father's custom home building company. So in yeah. 2014, uh, I shut down my short sale negotiation company to some degree. I still had uh, 70 some odd deals on the books that we went ahead and finished out. But my brother decided that he wanted him and I to take over the business and, you know, take it to the next level and so on. So anyway, I got into business with my brother and him and I had, you know, we're twins and we have a really special relationship, probably the best friend I've ever had, you know, still to this day. However, we couldn't agree on business. <laughs> so I went back into that business, invested everything that we had made, shut down a company that was making a quarter of a million dollars a year to go back and help him. And almost uh, got, got to the point where my brother and I were picking this, you know, supporting the entire company out of our own pocket to get it up and running again. It almost bankrupt me. Thank God it didn't. But I almost lost my house in the process. And uh, I started studying lease options. I, In fact, Joe, I, I think I mentioned this, this to you a while ago. I saw a video of yours way back when. And Marco Rebell is somebody that I've studied. And uh, Joe Crump, who is one of my uh, coaches, uh, even yeah. today, 
I've learned so much from those two and from you about lease options. And I thought to myself, instead of letting my house go to foreclosure, I want to lease option it. And so I lease optioned my house. I made 20 grand on the deal, put 20,000 down on a beautiful house that uh, I currently live in today that I bought subject to. And I thought to myself, this is friggin' awesome. Uh, I, I just couldn't believe that I was able to pull that off all within 30 days of about to be foreclosed on. <laughs> Let's rewind a little bit. Let's see what you just said. Okay, you're, yeah. you're facing foreclosure on your house. Right. Well, I'm in the process of a loan modification because okay. remember, I'm a short sale. Yeah. So I, I pushed it as far as I could, and then I forced the mod. You know the, you know the story. Yes, okay. So now you're doing a loan modification, and, and you then decide, you know what? I can put a tenant in here, let someone else take the property. And uh, so you did a lease option on the home. So you yeah. sold it on a lease option, or you marketed the home as a lease option. That's um, and so do you still lease that property out to that tenant buyer, or have you sold it yet? No, I still own it today, and it's making me a small fortune. Okay. <laughs> and then during that time, you go and you find another motivated seller who has a house that they're trying to sell. Yeah. There's some there's some motivation there. There there may be. Well, what was their story? Do you remember? A half a million dollar house in an area that uh, you know the subdivision that I currently live in. All the houses in here are half a million and. Um, yeah. However, we're in Imperial, Missouri, where we have trailers right next door. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So the, the people that want to spend that kind of money in this area are far and few between, and they were just struggling to sell it. So uh, I offered them 400000 and uh, they said, okay, I couldn't believe it. And so uh, I took their, they had a $380,000 mortgage. So I took it subject to and gave them 20 grand cash that I took from the tenant buyer on my last house. Uh -huh. So I took 20 grand from the tenant buyer as a down. I gave that to the owners of my house. Then I bought it subject to their existing financing for 380. So you got a nicer, newer house. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's uh well, it is newer. So, okay. um, but it's much nicer. I, I absolutely love it out here. It's to, you know, it's the house that you sit in and you say to yourself, even if I could afford a much bigger house, what would I do with it? Mm. You know, like an idiot, I've already finished the basement and I don't even go down there, you know? So uh, it's, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, you know, I'm just spending money. I probably should be investing, you know? <laughs> All right. So I love that. I love the fact that you can, and a lot of people don't think about this or know it, but like you can actually find your next house as a lease option or a subject to. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, the lease options. I like selling on lease options. I don't like buying on lease option, you know? Right. Okay. So, so your the house that you bought on subject to, or when you buy an investment property on subject to, do you keep them as long as you can, or do you typically do balloons? It depends. Like this particular house I live in, so I'm keeping it. I'm currently paying it down. So I have um, uh, a goal to be completely debt free by the end of next year. Yeah. So I'm aggressively paying this one down. But ultimately, I like to keep them as long as possible. There are times when somebody's got a significant amount of equity that I'll write a, a second mortgage on. And uh, if they force me into a five year balloon, I'll agree to it, but I won't do anything you know, shorter than a five-year balloon on their equity and their 
current mortgage, let's say they have a first for hundred grand, they have got 50 grand in equity on a second mortgage, that hundred grand, I make no guarantees on when I'm going to pay that down. But on their equity, if they push me, I'll put a five-year balloon on it. Okay. Nice. Nice. Yeah. People don't think about that, right? They don't think about how they could find their own home to live in, to lease purchase or subject to, or owner financing. Uh, that I love, that's one of the big reasons why I love creative financing. It costs me no money. I never talked to a single loan officer. And, yep. I'm a and the other thing is most people don't realize how hard it is for a entrepreneur, small business owner with no W2 income to get a loan. I mean, you can have enough cash in the bank to buy the house with cash, <laughs> but a bank will still not lend you the money if your debt-to-income ratio is too high. Well, I mean, that's obvious. But like, if you don't have two years worth of really good tax returns, and as an entrepreneur, you're trying to make your stated income as low as possible, right? Right. Uh, right. So you don't have to pay much taxes. So it's kind of like this vicious, ugly downward you know, circle to try to get financing as a small business owner. But anyway, okay, so cool. Uh, you, what do you, what kind of, what does your business look like now these days, Jason? Well, so one of the things I learned, I love lease options. I mean, I'm passionately in love with them. I Let's think. talk about why. Okay, well, uh, we just talked about one reason, but the ultimate reason I think is because you can create wealth with this type of deal structure in a way that you can't with anything else. And what I mean by that is the, you know, one of the things that um, I don't like about wholesaling lease options, and I know that's your business, but you're constantly having to find deals. Yeah. So what I do is I build portfolios that generate cash flow and depreciation, principal pay down, all kinds of different benefits that create wealth. Because wealth comes from ownership, right? Not wholesaling or flipping. Sure. Uh, I mean, my through my short sale business, uh, my partner and I flipped uh, just under 300 homes in, I don't know, how many years was that? 2009 to 14. So five years, we flipped just under 300 homes and we made a lot of money, but we had to keep flipping homes, yeah. you know? And my life right now, I get up whenever I feel like it. I never, ever miss a single event of my kids, whether it's theater class, piano, swimming lessons, soccer, basketball, whatever. I've never missed a single event since I started this business. And when I was working for my brother or with my brother, uh, I was working nine to nine. It was horrible stress. Even my short sale business, I took it too far because I'm kind of a workaholic and it was my whole life. And after meeting uh, Sean McCloskey and learning that, you know, you can be a millionaire and have no life. What life is, what kind of life is that? You know? Yeah. So I stopped uh, focusing on the money and I started focusing more on the freedom uh, that my business could create. Like I'm a car guy. So I have this dream of this huge car collection and, you know, like Jay Leno style, you know, but I just, those things aren't as important to me anymore. And maybe when my kids are grown and gone, I'll, I'll do, you know, I've had Corvettes and, stuff like that. But I just, uh, I don't know, Joe, maybe yeah. I'm rattling a little bit, rattling a little bit here, but it's just not, I'm 43 now. I'm, I'm thinking more uh, about leaving a legacy. So, you know, I've built a portfolio for my own business that takes care of all of my financial needs, whether I do anything or not. 
now I'm creating portfolios for my children. So I have three girls, one who's 23, who just gave me my first grandson. So I'm pretty pumped about that. Oh, awesome. And Congratulations. Thanks. And I've got an 11 or 10 year old and a four year old. So I'm currently building portfolios for them. So they never have to worry about money nice. uh, ever again. So that's so what my business looks like today. It's what well, I'm doing. Bottom line, you're looking bigger picture. You know, you can flip a deal and make a quick five grand or you can buy a deal, make a five grand when you put a tenant buyer in it. But then you can also get now three, four, five hundred dollars a month in cash flow, right? Cash flow, yep. Plus principal pay down. And the best part is depreciation. I don't pay taxes anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you take these over subject to, are you writing them off now? Are you depreciating them as well? I am. Oh, nice. Yep. Now I'm sure you you know that forces me into 1031 exchanges down the road, but I don't care. I mean, that's wow. no problem whatsoever. I love it. But I'll be able to put all my kids through college without, you know, I'll be paying cash for everything. What will I ever need to borrow money for again? You know? Yep. And you don't have to use any of your own money or credit to buy these homes because you're just taking over the mortgages. Yeah. Until, um, until two months ago, I hadn't put a single dollar in a piece of property that I bought. Okay, what happened two months ago? Oh, I had one that I probably shouldn't have bought. That um, uh, after I moved a tenant out of it, I said to myself, this house is pretty old and I probably need to update it and get it to a place where it's going to last another you know, 50 years or 100 years. And then I'm just going to sell it. So I decided to flip one of my properties that I've been holding. Okay. So I'm just doing some renovation, going to throw it on the market and dump it. Can we talk about numbers in the last few years? How many of these types of deals have you done? So um, I've probably done just under a hundred. Um, and let's see, I started in December of 2004, basically 2015, 16, and 17. Yeah. Uh, just under a hundred deals. And you're, again, you're buying them subject to, and you're turning around selling them on lease options. Not all of them. So the here's what I do. When I meet with a, a seller, I tell them really quickly, I buy houses three ways. I'll give you 70% of fair market value for the house, and I'll write you a check today. And um, we can close in you know 30 days or less. Or I'll give you 90 to 95% of fair market value if you'll sell me the house on terms, which is you know subject to or contract for deed or something like that. Yeah. Oh, I'll give you a hundred percent of fair market value. If you want me just to put a lease option tenant in it and the lease option tenant pays me, not you. So I do that at no cost to you. And so which one of those three do you like? I let them make the decision because you know, you can't, when you, people feel like they're making the decision, uh, you get a lot more decisions. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So I give them three options. I find out which one works best for them and I structure the deal accordingly. You know, which option do you find sellers uh, do the most? Well, I think that we can influence the seller. And so wholesaling deals, you know, I don't do, I don't own wholesale a deal for less than five grand. However, I'm out of the picture at that point. So I make my five grand and I move on. So I'm not, you know, shaking a stick at those deals, but that's the end of the deal for me. So what I like to do is scare the hell out of the owner that they're going to have to manage that property. And what if the tenant trashes the place or doesn't make the payment so that they agree to sell it to me subject to. So I try to influence a seller into selling it to me subject to, 
um, in every case. However, I, I would never pass up a deal because they wouldn't, you know. Okay. Some sellers are savvy and they want the investment, you know, because what we're doing is taking something they don't want anymore and making it an income or an asset, you know. So let's talk about this. If they, if a seller's got, obviously they have to have some motivation, right? They got to have some motivating factor. Yep. Um, and so they, let's say they want to do the part where the deal, where you give them 90% of fair market value. Yeah. Um, Doesn't that sound stupid, Joe? Like I'm paying <laughs> way too much. It does. It, but if it, 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 at first it does at first glance, but if you right. really understand it, it's brilliant. Yeah, uh, because you're getting them the same equity they would get if they sold to the realtor, but with a lot less hassle. Well, here's what I, and here's what I found out, at least here in Missouri. And I think it's worse in other places, but the average cost to sell your house with a real estate agent in St. Louis is 13%. And sometimes yep. as high as 20. Yep. You know? Now so, that you're factoring in a lot of things there, but it's more than just commissions. You know, yeah, people forget about that. It's like, the average, and you can look this up in any MLS across the country, and it's the same. The average discount between the original list price and the final sale price can be anywhere from four to six percent. Yeah, that's yeah. even in a hot market. You're seeing that right now today, and you can show sellers these numbers. Look in this zip code or in this county, in the last thirty days, the average discount between the original list price and the final sales price is five percent. Boom, there it is. Then you've got the commissions, then you're going to have some concessions, and then you've got the, the days on market and your carrying costs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, closing costs, all those things add up. And uh, uh -huh. it's staggering when, you know, people say, oh, I, you know, have a house that's worth 200000 I only own 150 They think they have 50000 equity. They don't have any equity, mm -hmm. you know, or very little, you know, when it's all said and done. So, so Jeff, walk through the number, like walk through an offer when you're talking to a seller. Did you just and, call me Jeff? I think you just called me Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, I'm sorry, Jason. I was looking at my notes right here. I talked to Jeff right before you. Jason Courtney, I'm sorry. No problem. I know what your name is. I'm just teasing you. Just teasing. <laughs> Jason. You sorry, know, I have a man. twin, so I answered almost anything. So don't worry. <laughs> All right, Jason. So walk through. And by the way, guys, at the I got a special cool thing that uh, Jason's going to give you. Uh, we've, we we put together a special recording of what, like four or five, six seller calls, Jason? Yeah, you asked me to throw some together, and you know, I just grabbed the ones that we did that week. You know, oh, so that's so awesome. We're making, you know, my coaching program is such a intimate, personal type of yeah. thing. You know, uh, I know we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but I'm on the phone a lot, but I love it. You know, it's my favorite thing, and it's the thing that my students seem to hate the most. But they only hate it because they've never done it and they're not comfortable doing it. And once they get comfortable, man, they're superstars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll give you the link in a minute, but if you can't wait, go to this website right now, dealswithjason.com, dealswithjason.com. And we'll give you these live seller calls. We took out the personal information from the sellers, but you get to listen in as Jason actually talks to sellers and then talks to his students, analyzing the deals, what went wrong, what went right and how to do it. But let's go to this example deal. You got a seller that owes two hundred thousand. I mean, sorry, it's worth two hundred thousand. They owe about one fifty. You walk through the numbers and they realize they only have maybe twenty thousand dollars in equity. Yeah, if True. that. If yeah. that. So, but they, you know, something happens where like they've just moved. They need. They can't make two payments. They got a job transfer, a job loss, and they're open. They're most interested in their second option, which is 
terms deal. Can you walk through kind of how you would present that offer to them? Yeah. So um, I just let them know that what I'm going to be doing is um, assuming their mortgage. Now, the problem with that is most mortgages today aren't assumable. They all have what's called a due on sale clause in them. And so I get a little bit of kickback or, you know, on things like that. However, the due on sale clause is an option that the bank can choose to exercise or not. All the deals I've done, I've never had that happen. I don't even know if we want to get into that right now, but I did have a bank say, you know what, Mr. Courtney, you're going to need to qualify for this loan if you're going to start making the payments. And I said, well, the guy I just bought the house from can't afford to make the payments anymore. So if you'd like me to stop making the payments, then that's what I'll do. But I'm not qualifying for the mortgage. I don't work that way. Yeah. And um, they were, the lady said, well, I'm going to need to call you back. And she called me back like, I don't know, the next day and said, no, Mr. Courtney, just keep making the payments. Everything will be fine. <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> By the way, let me add to this. I talked to somebody at City Mortgage one time who was actually still working there. And I said, hey, can I ask you some questions? You know, you know, investors are out there. They're trying to be all sneaky with taking over existing mortgages, you know, subject to. And he goes, yeah, we know all about it. I said, really? He said, yeah, we know what's going on. And he said, I'm completely speaking off the record here. And I said, okay, I get it, I get it. He said, you're not recording this, right? I said, yeah, I know I'm not. He said, uh, man, we know what's going on, but you got to understand something. At least at uh, City Mortgage, they're this huge multi, well, not multinational, but a huge national company, right? Doing mortgages all over the country. They literally have hundreds of thousands of customers. And he said, we know what's going on, but we're not going to do anything unless you're stupid and you start raising a bunch of red flags. And uh, he said, number one, you got to make sure the mortgage payments are being made. Okay. Because if he said, he said, this is important to understand. Once you start raising the red flags and doing stupid stuff, we will call the loan due. We will accelerate it, you know? So number one, you got to make sure the payments are being made. He said the second most important thing, and this is really, really important, he said, is that you have to make sure that the bank is still listed as the mortgagee or mortgage, mortgagee or mortgagor. Yeah, on the insurance. Probably. On the insurance. And the homeowner has to be labeled as, additional I forget the insured. additional insured or primary insured or additional insured or something like that. The guy who has the, has the loan has to be on that insurance. And uh, he said, I can't really say like, we don't care, but it's like, we kind of don't care. <laughs> right. You know, that's what he said. I couldn't believe it. You know what uh, they do care about? Having to take the property back. Yes, they don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting, Joe. I'm glad to hear that you've had that conversation. You know, I'll, I'll tell you that when I was in the short sale business actively, uh, we would always say the banks are stupid. But the reason I'm not in the flipping or short sale business anymore is because the banks have gotten really smart. And they're assessing the value of their assets so much better today than they ever were. And so people that are buying houses on the courthouse steps and, you know, think they're getting deals from foreclosed, they're just not getting deals anymore like we used to, you know, so it's well, too competitive. You know, and, and you got to remember, too, that uh, these banks, that could change. I mean, if interest rates start going up and, and they know like they can get 8% on their money now, they might take a deeper look. 
at these subject twos. And, uh, you know, might say, well, let's, let's call this one due so we can get this mortgage into someone else's hands. But even then, I mean, I don't know if they'd still want to do that because the costs of it's just a mess and it's a hassle. Right. Yeah, the problem still falls into at me as an investor, you think I'm going to keep making the payment? Yeah. I'm not. So they're going to not only are going to wind up, you know, the, the benefit, well, it really depends on each deal is going to be different, right? Because some deals are going to have a whole lot more equity in them than others. But if the bank chooses to call a note due, what do you think I'll do? I don't know. What would you I'll, do? I'll sell the property, uh-huh. you know, and get all my money. I'll take the equity I have currently. I'm not going to give it to the bank and I'll go out and buy another one. Yeah. You know, so I don't ever worry about the bank calling a note due. I've never had that happen. And none of my students have either. And Joe Crump, who's, you know, one of my coaches uh, out of, and he's done thousands of deals. He's never had it happen either. However, I do believe what you said about the rates going up and the bank saying, well, if we could get this money back and get it out on another deal, we can make a lot more money. I think that would motivate a bank to maybe call some notes due until the bluff was called. You know what I mean? Well, that's interesting too, because let's go back. You're buying these houses smart enough where you can sell it if you had to. Yeah, you bet. Yep. And worst case, you just break even, get your money back. Right. Or you just sell the loan, sell the house for what it's due. It's the number one reason why I love the business so much, Joe, is because single family residents, you know, when you get into multifamily units, you have to find an investor to buy these properties from you. Uh-huh. And investors all want a deal. But on single family residents, you have an open market, you know? And so selling a house is so much easier than having to sell an uh, investment property. And so my exit strategies, which I'm always thinking about, are so much easier. The, the stress of it is like, I love this business, man. I oh, but yeah. Oh, you, you said it so smart. I hope you guys caught that because you go out and try to sell a $50,000 rental. You're not going to sell it to a retail buyer. You're going to only sell it to a landlord, right? And if you, that property needs more than 10 grand to work to get it fixed up and it's nice, forget about it. Yeah. Forget about it. Yeah. So, but when you deal with nice houses, like what Jason's talking about, I buy pretty houses. I don't buy anything but pretty houses. Right. So there, I'm just going to guess they're in the median price range in St. Louis. That's maybe two hundred twenty-five to two hundred fifty thousand dollar price range. You know, I get asked that all the time, but I buy any house. I don't care if it's a million bucks. I don't okay. care. Well, I shouldn't say any house. I I have a rule that there's no money in fifty thousand dollar or less homes. So I don't buy anything under eighty grand. Uh-huh. But uh, I've got a couple properties uh, in my own portfolio that are over half a million. Okay. But it doesn't still- matter. You know, like people, when you're lease optioning a property, everyone gets very concerned about fair market rent, you know? And I'm saying, why are you concerned about that? If they were to buy this house, they'd have to go get a mortgage. So why don't you figure it on a finance deal? Mm-hmm. Don't worry about what fair market rent is. Get that out of your head. If they are if they can't afford the payment now, they're not going to be able to afford it if they decide to execute their option. Yep. You know, like you're forcing people to yeah. you know, stay in a, a, a bad situation. So, well, let me ask you too, when you're making the offers at 90 cents on the dollar, you are still factoring in repairs, right? So if it needs, if the house is worth 200,000 fixed up. When you're calculating your offer, you're still subtracting the 10 or 15 grand that they would need to put into repairs to get that updated, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, in most cases, I don't like buying houses that need that type of work, you know, and if it needs painting or carpet, I make the seller do it. I don't do it. 
Nice. Okay. Let's talk about marketing real quick. I want to wrap this up because I appreciate your time and, and I, I, I hopefully you're not too late for your next appointment. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got, oh yeah, you're right. We've got about 10, 15 minutes here and I got to run. Okay. Well, hurry up here. Let's talk about marketing. How are you getting your leads? Well, a couple ways. <clears throat> so I encourage my students to purchase Joe Crump's auto marketer. Yep. And uh, the auto marketer costs $200 a month and you pay uh, so much per text message that we're sending out. So the auto marketer scrapes Craigslist and it's about to scrape Zillow also. Uh -huh. uh, and you can target properties that you want to buy based on the, you know, a lot of different factors. And you're sending out this database sends out a text message to the owners of the property and says, would you consider selling your house on a rent to own basis? And if they say yes, then, you know, those are almost guaranteed deals. If they say no, I if I look at the ad and if it's a house that I want in my portfolio, I want to try to buy. I don't care if they said no or screw you or whatever. I'm calling them and I'm going to try to close that deal. So so many people don't even attempt to call the nose, you know. And I'm thinking more than half my portfolio are nose. You know what I mean? But you, you just call them anyway. I call them anyway. Not to mention when you're first getting started, what do you have to lose? You might as well call the jerks and practice and. <laughs> You know what I mean? Learn how to do this business before you screw up the good ones, you know? Good point. <clears throat> but the auto marketer is 200 bucks. I think I spend about $250 a month on marketing. Isn't that stupid, crazy? That's amazing. <clears throat> so one of my other coaches, um, who I mentioned earlier, he, they spend, his students spend an average of five grand a month on marketing. I'm like, holy cow. I didn't have that kind of money when I started. I was about to lose my house and everything, you know? Uh-huh. Yep. I had a, I had just enough to buy Joe Crump's auto marketer, you know, and, and I borrowed the money from my mother-in-law. So, wow. Anyway, <laughs> so that's what we do. I, I recommend that, but I, I built my business or started my business just cold calling. Uh, there was a, a paper that I uh, would get, you know, if someone had a house for rent. I would say, Hey, I'd call them up and say, would you consider selling it? Uh, rent to own us. I'm just renting it. And they'd say, yeah, I'd consider it. And then I'd, pitch the deal to him. And I, I ended up, I, when I first started doing the business, after I did my own home, uh, I knew it was possible. The confidence that doing my own home and buying the one I live in now just took me to a whole nother level. I, I knew it was possible at that point and I just went all out. And so the majority of my deals at first were wholesale deals because I wasn't slick enough at convincing them that I knew what I was doing with uh, subject to deals. Yeah. But uh, subject to deals, I think is where the you know, wealth comes from ownership. So if you don't get the deed, you don't own anything. You can't depreciate it. You can't, you know, write off the interest that's being paid. I mean, it's just a ownership's where it's at. So I think developing portfolios, buying houses subject to, I mean, well, how else can you do that without any money? You know? So um, when you close on these subject twos, do you, is it a desktop? I mean, a, a tabletop closing or do you use a title company? What do you do? I always close with a real estate attorney because I think it makes the seller feel more comfortable. Yeah. But you know, we can close them at the kitchen table if we want to, but I don't teach that. I teach that, you know, we find a local real estate attorney. I mean, I'm buying houses all over the country now because my students aren't in Missouri, you know? And so I have them find a local real estate agent that understands uh, what it means to buy a house subject to its existing liens. Uh -huh. um, and just for your, you know, people listening, yeah, all they have to do is grab a HUD statement and look at line 203. Yeah. You know, 203 says buying subject to an existing lease. I mean, 
when people say, oh, this doesn't sound legal, I'm like, you're kidding me. Have you ever seen a HUD? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all the transactions we do are perfectly legal and um, a great opportunity for both the seller and me as an investor. So, but back um, to cost, I mean, it's, I think it's unbelievable to only spend $250 a month in marketing, you know? But it's. Oh, man. It's, it, it's, it's so smart. Um, I, I tell you, I know so many people that are spending five thousand to ten thousand dollars in marketing per deal. Now that we're talking big deals. Yeah. Like don't get us wrong, you can make good money wholesaling, spending that kind of money in marketing, but the, you have the entire United States open to you in your backyard. I mean, Jason, would you agree you don't have to do deals in St. Louis, right? I mean, it would be just as easy for you to do this in Des Moines, Iowa, right? I do it everywhere. Right now I'm buying houses in Las Vegas, Colorado, Ohio, Florida, Illinois, and Kansas. And you don't have to go look at the house and meet the seller in person to negotiate these deals. I haven't met any of them except for the ones that I've bought in my own personal portfolio. The state, the houses that I'm buying in other states are my students' portfolios. Yep. Nice. So the student, it's good for the students to go to the house, right? To get the paperwork signed? To make sure you're not buying a turd. You know? Yeah. Good. I mean, when you're wholesaling, who cares? But when you're, you know, you're adding it to your portfolio, you need to put eyes on it, I think. Jason, talk real quick. What are some of the secrets to talking to sellers and learning how to, you know, talk and and say the right things? Well, I think number one, you're helping them. And if they don't believe that you didn't do your job very well, (laughs) you know, and if I can't help somebody, that's okay. No big deal. You can tell me no all you want. You know, but I'm not going to, I used to, when I first started, I'd had sellers that dragged me out, you know, and say, well, I'm kind of interested. Send me some information, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, be all excited about this deal and never get it closed. And uh, one of the things I know, uh, Claude Diamond's a buddy of yours, but I listened to some of his calls. I can't believe this guy does the amount of deals he does. He seems so rude on the phone. And uh, after being on the phone myself for so long, Claude Diamond's got it figured out, you know, like mm-hmm. he really, he knows how to not waste anybody's time on deals that he's never going to get. And I'm like, I thought this guy was so wrong and his style was terrible. <laughs> and I'm learning that I'm still a lot softer than Claude. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, yeah. You don't have to be like him, but yeah. you get the point. You're in, you're in business to make money today. That's right. And I think the key to this business is learning how to talk to sellers. And as you know, I structured my business or my coaching uh, business uh, because when you enter into a coaching agreement, uh, you get very little access to the person that created the information and that knows how to do the deals. And that's why I have to keep my coaching business so small because I'm only one person. Mm -hmm. And I started I wanted to help people for free. I was so grateful for the things that my life changing and the way that it did because of this business. And I was desperate and I had no money. So I wanted to help people do this business uh, with no money. So I started coaching uh, people for free. And uh, unfortunately when they have no skin in the game, they don't do anything, you know? So it really changed the way I structured my coaching business. And what I've learned is that, uh, if you have something to lose for me, I had nothing, you know, and I was going to lose everything. So uh, the monetary value was not that I didn't need that. 
But someone who's not in that situation, if they always have something to lose, they're not going to do this business, you know. And so the way I've structured it is that I, I still get to do it for free. But, um, you know, they have to yeah. be invested and then I give them their money back. You know, yeah, they put a deposit down. They right. put a deposit down to work with you, but you don't care about the deposit because you split on you split deals with them. It's kind of like an insurance policy, right? Yeah. Well, I just want to do more deals. I mean, because I can make a lot more money the more students I have out there doing deals. Yeah. And so uh, I'm helping people and it's making me money. I love it. I mean, it's all about doing more deals. It's not about coaching fees or, you know, like I have a small monthly fee also, but that just covers my expenses and all the crap I need to be a good coach. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? So well, one of the cool things that you do too, is that you actually get on the phone and talk to sellers. Yeah. With your, how, how does that work? Well, I closed their first three deals for them. So what? yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's the way the system works. So they'll, I give them a script. They do their cold calling, whether they're, if they have the auto marketer, it's not really a cold call. It's at least a warm call. Right. If they don't do the automatic. They don't have to do it. They can cold call and, and just start, Generating up business. I give them a call script with questions and they basically are saying, my partner and I are interested in purchasing your home. We've got some questions for you. And after I get these answered, my partner and I are going to call you back and put a deal together. So they get the questions answered and they send me a copy of that call sheet along with a, the call. They record the call so that I can hear what they're saying and doing. And then I call that seller back and we close the deal over the phone set up a home visit. And then that student goes to the home, gets paperwork signed, gets pictures, and we start marketing and start collecting moolah. I like it. I like it a lot. And their initial coaching fee, they get back a portion of that on all three deals. And so until they get all their money back, because I don't want, I don't, I want to coach people for free, but my time is so valuable that I want to be effective, Joe, you know, like having 10 students that didn't pay anything to get into the business was exhausting. Yeah. Uh, it really almost made me not want to do it anymore. If you want to know the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So they got some skin in the game and I'm telling you, you're doing them a disservice by not charging them a fee for yeah. what you're doing. Cause you're talking about, you're going to get on the phone and close the sellers for them. That's I don't do that. <laughs> that's an, that's an incredible value. So uh, I know you got to go, Jason. Um, if people want to get these, you put together four or five or six live seller calls that we're talking about. You put them in together in a recording and they can get them at dealswithjason.com, right? Yeah, they go there, they can download and listen to them. And, uh, you know, if they're interested in uh, being part of uh, my program, then uh, they can contact me just by sending an email to coachingwithjason at gmail.com coaching with jason at gmail.com coaching with jason at gmail.com jason's a good friend of mine guys and i wanted to get him on the podcast uh to recommend him to you all he you know because of the nature of his coaching business he keeps it super simple and he's focused hyper focused on doing deals he only can work with a few people i mean literally not more than 10 or 12 at a time and so if you feel like you know this might be a good fit something you're interested in Go to dealswithjason.com, download these audios, see if you like them or not. I don't see why you wouldn't. He's such a laid back, cool guy. Yeah, I and think it's more of, well, I like them, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good point. All right, very good point. It's unfortunate, but true. You know, some people, I have yeah. one student that uh, I don't know why I ever took her on. I mean, I, I probably knew ahead of time I shouldn't have, and, you know, but I was helping her for free. So I thought, you know, what I had to lose and you know what I lost a lot of time with my students mm. that were doing deals. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. 
And what was that email again, Jason? Uh, it's coachingwithjason at gmail.com. And, uh, coaching with coaching with Jason at gmail.com. What were you going to say? It's just for my students. Nobody else uh, gets that email. So um, they communicate with me there. Uh, uh, and, you know, they schedule. Well, you have it. If, if, yeah, if, if you're interested in getting some coaching from, from Jason, uh, send an email there. But you have other means, private means of communication with your actual coaching students that Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have to, I mean, I feel like, and I could be wrong when I say this, but I feel like I'm as hands-on as a coach can possibly be. Yeah. I want them to succeed. I really, really do because if they're not doing deals, they're no, I don't want to, this sounds terrible. They're no good to me. That's not true, but uh, (laughs) I'm trying to do more deals. And if the students aren't doing deals, I'm not making any money. So, yeah. uh, But now, you know, the way the program's working now, it's uh, just gotten really smooth and, I'm just enjoying it, and uh, we're helping a lot yeah, of people. Good. Yeah, good. You are. You are, Jason. That's why I wanted you on the podcast, and uh, I want to wish you the best of luck and Thank success. You. We're going to have breakfast, I think, in a few days, in a week or two. We'll talk about that offline. But uh, thanks so much for being here, Jason. I appreciate you very much, man. Bill, thanks for asking me to do it. I really It was an honor. Thank you. All right, guys, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com for the show notes. Just go to the search bar and do a search for Jason. You'll find the show notes of this episode. And uh, if you want more, if you want those seller call recordings with Jason, go to dealswithjason.com. And I appreciate you all. Thanks for being here. And we'll talk to you later. See you. Bye-bye.